It was the middle of the night two weeks ago. Wake up, there's some man trying to hit us with a hammer. Brutally attacked with a blunt instrument and a knife. Been beaten on the head with a hammer. That very moment, I just about stopped breathing. Bennett's family was brutally attacked. I was in a coma. A very brutal, horrific scene. I knew she was dead. I, I just knew. You know, they were good people. Why did, you know, what did they do wrong? We have no hard suspects at this time. But it's, it's always there. That the guy is probably deceased. It was comforting to think this person was dead. The hammer man, whatever you want to call it. It's always there in the back of my mind. Every day in all these years. It haunted the families and the victims to the core. I had a lot of nightmares. You know, the fear that we lived with all these years, we always wondered if he was still out there because he would know who we were, but we wouldn't know who he was. It's been over 34 years. He's known, but he, we just don't have his name. It was a cold, cold January day, and um, they'd taken the bus to the park and ride. I get there, and she was not there, which, of course, was unusual. Um, like I said, she was always prompt in getting me, because then we had to get to the daycare to pick up the kids. So when she wasn't there, and about 15 minutes into that, and, you know, we didn't have cell phones in those days, um, I, I called a, a cousin of mine and said, you know, I'm really worried. I said, I don't know where she's at. She had car problems or, you know, something happened. That's Sherry Letton. And that's how she begins telling the story of the worst day of her life. January 10th, 1984. And I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver. Welcome to Blame, the fear all these years. I had moved up to Denver with my two children um, over Labor Day weekend um, the year before and I uh, started working for an oil company and my mother at that time had moved to Denver with me to um, help me get on my feet, you know, with my two kids and uh, starting a new job and everything. I was going through a divorce at the time. Sherry's mother, Patricia Louise Smith, was an interior designer. She often traveled from her home in Nebraska to Denver for work. So it was easy to set up a base here, working from home and calling on clients. We were living together at that time um, at a townhome up in Green Mountain. And, you know, kind of save on expenses and stuff. She was taking me to the, a park and ride up there in Green Mountain. And then I'd take the bus to work and come home at night and she'd be there to pick me up and then we'd go pick up the kids at daycare and uh, so it was just a normal day you know she took me to work or took me to the bus and went to work and I remember I had talked to her that day I mean even though we lived together you know we talked throughout the day that day was a Tuesday it was six days after a man with a hammer had broken into an Aurora home and beaten a couple as they slept Fewer than 24 hours since someone beat a flight attendant with a hammer and sexually assaulted her, also in Aurora. But neither of those attacks had gotten much attention in the news. So my cousin, you know, came immediately, and she wasn't very far away there in Lakewood, and picked me up, and we went to the daycare, got the kids. This was a little bit after 6 by that time, because I know the kids were the last ones there at the daycare by then. And um, then we, you know, drove to the house. The home Sherry and her kids shared with Patricia was in a complex of a dozen two-story units. Two rows of townhomes, six on each side, separated by a stretch of blacktop. Between each unit and that common roadway sat a garage. Imagine 1980s Colorado mountain architecture, angled cedar siding, shake roofs, 
white stuccoed accent walls. And of course it's dark out because it's January. And I remember that it had a detached two-car garage and the door to the garage was open and her car was parked on the inside. And so I remember thinking, well, that was very strange. You know, she's home, you know. Between the garage and the front door was a small secluded courtyard. Sherry approached with her cousin and her two kids. It was about 6.15 p.m. There were no lights on except the um, her bedroom. There was a, a balcony above that little courtyard area. And you know how when it's dark out, you can see a TV flickering, you know, those lights. And I remember seeing that. I think, well, that's strange, you know, she's TV's on kind of thing. And just um, opening the door and there was there was no other light. There were no lights on, you know. So when we walked in, I, you know, the kids ran in and I turned on the entryway light and and she was six feet, if that, from the door. At this point, this is what where my memory kicks in. That's Amber Reese, Sherry's daughter. She and her brother, Joe Reese, had just been picked up at daycare. Amber was not quite six. Joe was about to turn four. My brother was right behind me, and, and I walked in, and, and I saw her displayed. I remember on, we had Winnie the Pooh blankets, so I remember that vividly. Her face was covered where the wound was. Covered by that Winnie the Pooh blanket. I do remember that. I remember her, the blanket was covering most of her face. Um, so we did not see the wound, but we knew, I knew she was dead. I, I just knew. I, I remember seeing her and, you know, thinking it was really odd. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think we, you know, had anything other than a pet die, but I don't think I really understood death at that moment. Of course, my cousin who had come, picked me up and t taken us there, we were, it was the four of us, and we just immediately grabbed the kids and ran to the neighbor. Now, I remember almost everything from walking into the door and then that night. Though he was so young, the memories are just as clear in Joe Reese's mind. Everybody was crying um, at, our, at our neighbor's house. I think they were trying to put us down at our neighbor's house, so. Um, I do remember all of that, um, yeah. Amid the commotion next door, Sherry's neighbor went to her unit to investigate. And he came back and, you know, told us, yeah, she is gone. This is when she was still with us. This would have been just a year before, just about a year before. Sherry and her kids yes, flipped through family photographs. Right here, there's my mom. So this was at my, um, my mother and myself at a wedding shower. And they're remembering Patricia, a woman who had a thousand watt smile. You know, normally we used to pull this bag out, like I think once a year, they kind of got lost for a while and then it was a necessity to find them. I also think it's harder reason. because a lot of the, the pictures bring up a lot of memories. And compared to other families that I see have a lot of pictures everywhere, I think it's a little more difficult for us because it does bring back a lot of tough memories. Yeah, good ones but tough ones and sometimes, yeah. Tough ones because every photo is tinged with their reality. Sherry's mother, Amber and Joe's grandmother, left small town Nebraska to help them and instead met her death in the big city. Tough ones because of the hole that remains in all their lives. Yeah, you have your mother, and then you have your grandmother, and 
you know, my mom and her mom uh, were both were both so close. So as a child, I was always with them. Um, she was just uh, one of the most loving women. Um, a lot of close friends. People loved her. They really did. Um, and you know, being the only, the oldest, and the only daughter. You know, we were just spent a lot of time together. We did a lot of things together. You know, living back in Nebraska, some of my fondest memories where we would take the train and come to Denver and go shopping for the day. You know, so we just um, we spent just uh, as much time as possible. I mean, we really did. And she was close to to my two children. And she was a worldly woman. She traveled a lot. She knew a lot about fashion. She was. She loved traveling to Europe, and she knew all about interior design. She just had a very international flair to her. Um, she's a neat lady for being from Nebraska. Yeah, she wasn't what you would think, you know, typical woman, you know, living on a farm in Nebraska. You would never know that. <laughs> it was particularly brutal, a murder. It was immediately clear to responding police officers that Patricia Smith's death had been horrific. It's, it's extremely brutal. Um, it was a, a very brutal, horrific scene, yes. That's Lakewood Police Detective Brian Fike in 2018. She was beaten with a hammer. He's one of many investigators who have worked the case over the years. One of the more brutal cases that I've personally been involved with. Patricia's killer beat her in the head with an auto body hammer and tore at her clothing. Detectives found several buttons ripped free, resting on the carpeting nearby. They also found the hammer, its head stained with blood. And there was more. Detectives suspected that Patricia's killer raped her. A lot of things I don't remember. I've kind of blocked out um, from that time. You know, they called the detectives, of course, and then it was just a madhouse. They had, you know, rescue units out there. They had the whole area blocked off, and there were news crews, lights. But it was a pretty, yeah, obviously, very traumatic time for everybody. Although Sherry's parents were living apart, her mother with her, her dad back in Nebraska, they were still married. In the bewildering aftermath of discovering her mother's body, Sherry needed to get the news to her dad, but didn't want to do it over the phone. She reached an aunt who called a friend who drove out to the family farm and delivered the shocking news. Patricia had been murdered. As they worked the scene that first night, detectives encountered potential evidence on both the main floor and in the master bedroom upstairs. Blood and pieces of partially eaten hamburger were on the floor inside the front door, just a few feet from where Patricia's body lay. Upstairs on the bed was her wig, leather jacket, car keys, and Kent cigarettes, along with a couple of packets of ketchup and a carton of French fries. Nearby was a foil hamburger wrapper, a Wendy's to-go bag, and a receipt. Patricia had been at the fast food joint a few blocks away at 1.10 that afternoon. According to police records, there were no obvious signs of a disturbance or struggle. It appeared Patricia's killer had surprised her after she'd returned home and dropped her jacket, purse, and other belongings on her bed, attacking as she ate her hamburger. Had he knocked on the door and pounced when she opened it? Had he slipped in, hidden in that coat closet just behind that door, and blitzed after she came back downstairs with her burger in her hand? However it unfolded, it seemed clear that after raping and killing her, he dumped out her purse looking for cash, then fled. A nine news crew went to the scene that night, shooting video of the police tape blocking the street in front of the townhome. The slain merited a brief mention on the 10 o'clock news, 
and three paragraphs in the next morning's paper. Headline, woman's body found. The partially clothed body of a 50-year-old Lakewood woman was found by her daughter Tuesday at 6.15 p.m. when she returned to the condominium they shared. Lakewood Police Spokesman Dave Gowett said Patricia Louise Smith was found by her daughter Sherry Reese after she returned home from work. Smith had received a head injury, but an autopsy will be performed Wednesday to determine the cause of death. Rocky Mountain News, January 11, 1984. Two days later, the murder was in the paper again with a chilling new detail. Headline, clues sought in woman's beating death. Patricia Smith was beaten to death with a blunt object, according to an autopsy report. She suffered repeated blows to the head, possibly with a hammer that was found near the body, said Dave Gowett, Lakewood Police Department Public Information Officer. Rocky Mountain News, January 13, 1984. I feared for my family. After the murder, a kind of terror gripped Sherry Letton. I remember an incident living in Aurora. She took one a knife night. out. <laughs> I remember I, that. <laughs> it, was, it was one night, and like I said, I was living with a friend. She happened to be gone that, that evening. And I hear it sounded like someone trying to get in the front door. And my two kids are there. It's night. And being scared to death and going you know, grabbing a knife and not even knowing what to do. And, you know, I called the police, of course, obviously, and they came over. And when I explained to them why I was so afraid, who I was, then they were just uh, amazing. And they, you know, they said, we're going to have extra, you know, patrol around here, you know. And, um, but it was, like I say, because they just didn't know. And they gave us no indication that, you know, that they had any clue who it was. In truth, they didn't have a clue. It's a possibility that we have a mad hammer killer on the loose. That's a possibility and it hasn't been discounted, nor has it been totally confirmed yet either. There'd been a couple attacked as they slept in their bed by a hammer-wielding man. There'd been the assault on the flight attendant. But as shocking as they might have been, they got no news coverage, at least initially. Then after Patricia's murder and the killing six days later of Bruce Deborah and Melissa Bennett, Reporters looked at them with new questions. The teletype all points bulletin has been sent to police departments around the country looking for crimes with similar circumstances. Police hope that will lead them to the killer. For now, police are unprepared to say for sure that all these crimes are connected, but they concede the similarities are just too strong to ignore. Had a lot of nightmares, a lot of nightmares with her and them. And um, I'm, I'm sure that was part of the process, you know, as a child, trying to figure that out. For Amber and Joe, the legacy of that violence would reverberate in different ways as decades passed with no answers to the maddening question, who could do such a thing? A lot of questions about death came into my mind at a young age. And um, questions, you know, why, like who would do something? What kind of higher, you know, power would take someone like that away? Because, you know, she was... She was um, the heart of our family. It really, we really took a blow when that happened. There was some situations growing up where I would um, talk to friends and go over the story and it would still just not make you know, quite sense to me. She was the glue that kept the family together. And yeah. when, that, um, yeah. when that was taken from us, the rest of the family, I guess, didn't really know how everybody all worked yeah. together. And she was the one that, that helped everybody. Yep. He did more than just take, you know, my grandmother away. He, you know, 
damaged a family. Yeah, I think it, it damaged that immediate family, my mom yeah. and her two brothers and, yeah. and our grandfather, but um, I think a lot of, um, a lot of that pain has brought the younger generation closer together. For Sherry, there is the tangible and there is the abstract. Tangible fear all these years that manifests itself in daily routines. Could not leave my home in the wintertime without a light on, so I had to come home to a light. And to this day, I have all my, my closets have to be open. I, I can't. No, I, they all have to be open. Can't have closed closet doors. And uh, I'm, I'm leery of, you know, strangers. I really don't want to get close to my neighbors. I don't feel comfortable doing that. Is that part of it? I don't know. But uh, it is what it is. Abstract feelings, messy, no easy answers. It's such a roller coaster, so much um, pain in the beginning um, and fear, not knowing who it was. if if he knew who we were, where we lived. You know, I had children to think about. So there was a lot of that. And then as the years went by, kind of gave up the hope that they would find somebody. I deal with it because I have to. I have life to live, um, but it's, it's always there. There's no way to say, oh, yep, I moved on. No, never, never, never. Even if we hadn't been the ones to find her and do that. Like I said, she was the heart of our family. And you can't replace that. Um, like I say, we all deal with it in different ways at different times when we have to. Um, I miss her every day because she was my best friend. And we talked every day, even when she was traveling, when she was in Europe, <laughs> she, you know? Um, but no, it'll always, always be there. And I can let it go and not think of, you know, really think about what happened. But then every time I do, it just comes there. It would be decades before police publicly acknowledge any strong links between the attacks carried out by a man with a hammer. There is a DNA match that's been established between these two homicide scenes. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. And I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. The original coverage of the murder of Patricia Louise Smith was from former Nine News reporter Rick Salinger. The interview of Sherry Letton, Amber Reese, and Joe Reese was conducted by Nine News reporter Eddie Randall. There is much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at ninenews.com slash blame. If you like Blame, The Fear All These Years, subscribe at Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts, Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And Blame lost at home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com.